The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. I'm David Faber, and this is ExxonMobil at the Crossroads, a special CNBC podcast. I'll put in a flight plan, flight plan ready to go. Captured 5,000, accelerate. Mile and a half up. And to continue around. More than a thousand feet long and anchored off the coast of South America, this new offshore vessel is the latest entrant in the global race to secure oil. Hope you enjoyed the flight. It is a monstrous piece of equipment. We've now been producing oil and gas for about 78 days. It's operated by ExxonMobil, a globe-trotting behemoth that's changed the history of our planet. For more than a hundred years, the company's oil and gas have fueled our commutes, taken our goods all over the world, and been converted into chemicals that go into our everyday products. This is what's used for your milk jug. For my milk jug. But now, we're paying the price for our insatiable energy consumption. We've been seeing the wildfires out in the western United States. We see the consequences of climate change bearing down on us. If we don't wean ourselves off fossil fuels, if we don't fix climate change, it will fix us. ExxonMobil has been seen by many as a ringleader of climate change denial. They're the ones who knew back in the 70s and 80s that the burning of fossil fuels is going to affect the climate and in 2021 experienced a seismic event when it faced a shareholder rebellion. We begin with some breaking news this hour on Exxon. Activist firm Engine One has obtained at least two board seats following a vote at Exxon's shareholder meeting. With unprecedented access to company executives, workers, and facilities. Well, we could take you up there. Yeah. We put a hard hat on you and some gloves. We'll take you anywhere you want to go. This is very light crude. This would be another form of blue hydrogen. I'm actually third generation ExxonMobil. We're examining whether ExxonMobil is serious about lowering its carbon emissions. You say you want to be a leader. Do you really think you are, that ExxonMobil is a leader in that area? I think we will be, absolutely. And finding out whether its investors are willing to pay for a faster energy transition. I'm talking to shareholders this week, and you just don't get the mandate. What would get you there? These guys need to be punched in the face. Breaking news under attack. But as events threaten the pivot. Gas prices, are, they're killing us. Will lower carbon future with calls for energy companies to keep pumping. For the good of your country, for the good of the world, to invest in immediate production. ExxonMobil, and in some sense, America itself, stands at a crossroads. Act One, the heart of American energy. Three hours from the Mexican border lies a land of paradox, admired by naturalists for its scenic beauty and coveted by capitalists for the rich resources trapped deep beneath the surface. 
It's known as the Permian Basin, an area about the size of Nebraska that stretches across West Texas and Southeast New Mexico. The Permian, once thought to be in decline, has instead become the beating heart of American energy, pumping out more than 40% of U.S. oil and roughly 15% of America's natural gas. This is our country's most productive geographic location. Yeah, right? certainly that's, that's true, and certainly the, the Permian gets a lot of the, the headlines. Bart Kerr is a 28-year veteran of ExxonMobil and president of its subsidiary, XTO Energy. He's in charge of developing the company's resources here, including this massive processing plant. On a route to turning this into an 800,000 barrel a day asset. 800,000 barrels, I want to just stop for a minute. That is a huge amount of production. I mean, we're talking in the country we do around 10, 11 million now a day, is that? Yeah, I think the U.S. is around 12. But still, as a percentage of overall daily production, that's a pretty big number. This asset provides us an opportunity to really demonstrate what we're about and the capabilities that are unique to us that we can bring to bear. Since it's still a work in progress, the complex currently produces only a fraction of its potential. But Exxon says the facility is an essential part of the company's plan to multiply its output. The Permian in particular, which obviously has been drilled for 100 years now, though, was thought to be perhaps kind of on its last legs, right? Yeah, well, a lot of the reservoirs in, in the Permian, the original or conventional reservoirs, were shallower, and now we're developing the, the, the shale or the, the sandstones that were, are considered unconventional. Extracting from unconventional reservoirs requires a process you've no doubt heard of called fracking. We're going to have more fracking, more American energy. Frack, baby frack. While Exxon didn't invent the process, it's been working to improve the method, which starts by drilling straight down. To prevent hazardous leaks, steel casings are added and cemented along the vertical shaft that runs about two miles deep. Then, the well is curved and drilled horizontally, two to four miles through a layer of rock, often shale. Special equipment perforates the horizontal steel casings, and a mixture of sand, chemicals, and water is pumped in to fracture the rock. The sand keeps the cracks open, allowing the oil and gas to escape. The shale revolution, which is founded on a, a combination of technologies, has been a a, a sea change for our industry. Exxon was actually late to the game, buying its way into fracking at the end of 2009 by acquiring XTO Energy. A deal valued at $41 billion, it's been widely criticized. I think they overpaid. Exxon unfortunately made it just a very bad move. The worst deal ever was when Exxon bought XTO when natural gas was incredibly high and natural gas just hit an all-time low. But Exxon considers its Permian operations a crown jewel. Fracking itself has fueled an astonishing turnaround story, transforming a declining U.S. fossil fuel industry in the early 2000s into the world's top producer of natural gas and oil, surpassing Saudi Arabia and Russia. Not everyone has been cheering for the revolution. As America's dominance in the oil and gas industry has been bubbling up, so too have environmental concerns over the production and use of all fossil fuels. 150 world leaders under one roof. In 2015, nations gathered in France to tackle the problem of global warming. And when it comes to climate change, that hour is almost upon us. In a treaty that became known as the Paris Climate Accord, 
Participants agreed to pursue efforts to lower their greenhouse gas emissions and keep global temperatures from rising more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. The further we go past one and a half, two degrees and more, the greater the impacts. Catherine Hayhoe is the chief scientist for the Nature Conservancy and a professor at Texas Tech University. She's something of a climate science ambassador. Climate change is loading the weather dice against us. It's taking naturally occurring weather events from heat waves and hurricanes to wildfires and droughts, and it's making them stronger, bigger, and more dangerous. But recently, calls for a clean energy future have been drowned out by inflation, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and the news of Exxon's profits, which soared to $23 billion in 2021. Exxon is the top performer, reported the highest quarterly free cash flow in more than a decade. With the prospect of much higher returns in 2022, the company has become a punching bag for some politicians. Exxon made more money than God this year. One thing I want to say about the oil companies, they're not drilling. Why aren't they drilling? There are no switches that people can flip to bring production on. The pressure to respond to the world's appetite for energy is a job that falls to this man, Exxon CEO Darren Woods. An engineer by training, the 30-year veteran of the company was thrust into the top position in 2017 after his predecessor, Rex Tillerson, was tapped to become U.S. Secretary of State. My profound thanks uh, to President Trump. The unflappable Woods has faced the seemingly opposing priorities of increasing production and lowering the company's greenhouse gas emissions, all while pleasing shareholders, including some who may not favor aggressive spending to pursue a low-carbon future. Capital pushes back, though. I mean, your shareholders may not want you to move that quickly. You know, they're happier watching enormous cash flows translate into share buybacks or dividend increases. You know, I don't know why the world has gotten to a point where it's kind of an either or equation. The political dynamic that we see out there has kind of filtered into just about every aspect of our life. It's either it's black or it's white. It's, you know, it's wrong or it's right. It's this or it's that. Frankly, my view is we can do both. Wood says ExxonMobil is taking climate change into account when it drills in the Permian. A journey down dusty back roads leads inside a sliver of ExxonMobil's nearly two million acres here. We're getting rare access to see how the company says it's making these operations more environmentally responsible and efficient. This rig actually slides across and it walks back and forth and so we can drill several wells in batches. Production manager Enrique Garcia, who's been with the company 23 years, explains that the process works like an assembly line. How many wells conceivably will come off this rig? So this particular pad will eventually have between 24 and 36 wells. To reduce the company's carbon footprint, some of the equipment producing fossil fuel here is no longer entirely powered by it. This is part of the electrification effort. That's correct. We're taking power from the grid that's allowing us to drill these wells. It's replaced how much in diesel fuel? Almost 10 million gallons of diesel across our fleet, across the permit. But it's got a ways to go. Right now, only 40% of the power here comes from carbon neutral sources. Growing up in this region, there's always been oil and gas to an extent. 2018, 2019 is really when you know you could see that this was an oil boom town. Kaylee Shoup lives in Carlsbad, New Mexico, a city about 45 miles from where we met Garcia. 
She's become an activist trying to raise awareness about environmental concerns caused by the oil and gas industry. We are not seasoned activists, but we are community members forced to take action by the impacts of living with oil and gas. We like to inform the public, what is the risk of living near an oil and gas site? One of her concerns involves a highly explosive, naturally occurring gas that is released during fracking, methane. It's so abundant, it can be an engineering challenge to capture it all, so it's often flared or burned. Climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe explains why. So if you don't burn it, all of that methane gets released into the atmosphere where it is more than 30 times more powerful at trapping heat than carbon dioxide. If you burn it, it then releases carbon dioxide, so it's kind of a lose-lose. It's an invisible greenhouse gas that can also leak from facilities. Shoup has seen it with special equipment. And that was just really harrowing to sit back and be like, oh my gosh, this is happening every day and no one's seeing it. You can't see it, you can't smell it, you can't taste it, and so out of sight, out of mind. Mark Brownstein of the Environmental Defense Fund says for decades we've had no clear picture of how much methane the industry has been emitting. His organization set out to change that. When they would assert that they didn't have a methane emissions problem, we said, where's your data? Well, there's, there is no data, it's all engineering calculations. And so we started a set of peer-reviewed field studies which actually then showed us that in the United States, for example, emissions are 60, 60% higher in actuality than what's being reported to the federal government today by industry. I give great credit to the Environmental Defense Fund, very progressive research and high quality science. Matt Kolasar, ExxonMobil's chief environmental scientist, says the company has been making strides to reduce its methane emissions. I think industry fell behind on getting some of that infrastructure in place to take the gas out of the basin. We as a company set up a program now four years ago that said, I will not start up this unit until I am sure I have the right infrastructure to get that gas to market and I don't have to flare it. Enter Exxon's ambitious cowboy plant, a sprawling complex that wrangles and separates oil and natural gas from roughly 400 wells. All right, so yep. we're headed to the control room. Yep. In the facility's nerve center, the barrel count quickly adds up. Often come and look at the actual flow rate, but what's that, 143,000 barrels a day I'm seeing there? That's ringing the cash register to, right. to a degree. These are examples of some of the crude that comes into the plant. They're both crude? Yes. Allison Pewitz, Cowboys engineering manager, took us behind the scenes. So this whole area is the inlet area to the plant. This is where all the pipelines come in. The company says now, when a new site starts producing, the gas, along with the oil, can be reliably captured, sent to Cowboy, and sold. Something that also has become a lot more important in terms of the mission of the company, which is trying to make sure your environmental impact is as small as possible. Sure. Uh, and obviously carbon and carbon footprint have something to do with that as well. How does that play a role in your day, if it does? So we have a special team that handles the bigger greenhouse gas initiatives, you know, major changes to process, major changes to equipment, things like that. On my day-to-day -day basis, what that really means is I'm making sure that we never put gas out the flare. That's right. So that you are aware of that when there's yes. flaring or, yep. or an upset. Right. Out in the field, Exxon monitors methane with special gas imaging cameras, overhead flights, and new technologies at certain sites. So we got sight, sound, sort of a digital smell. Uh, we're trying all sorts of applications of technology. Surround the problem. Surround the problem. 
and ultimately those sources are pretty easy to fix. Brownstein says it's only a start. I'll know we're making progress when they can show me the field monitor data that shows that in fact, yes, their emissions have gone down and that they can show me year after year that that is in fact the case. The company's commitment to lower its greenhouse gas emissions comes straight from the top, with its CEO making a key announcement at a 2021 Houston Energy Conference. Darren Woods, thank you. Today, we announced plans to achieve net zero emissions in our Permian Basin operations by 2030. That means Darren Woods is promising the company will reduce its carbon footprint from its own operations and processing in the Permian, even as it's increasing production there. But it has nothing to do with the emissions that come from burning the product it produces. The critics would say, well, yeah, okay, but you're still producing, taking carbon out of the ground and then it's gonna be burned and go into the air. And that's the real problem. And that comes back to the demand equation and what alternatives people have to meet their needs. You know, until you have good solutions to address that demand, those emissions will, will be generated. While ExxonMobil's environmental efforts in the Permian are noteworthy, some fear the company is prolonging our dependence on fossil fuels and delaying progress of an essential shift towards sustainable, renewable energy like wind and solar, areas the oil giant is not pursuing. Exxon's a, a, a challenging topic. Why? Well, for over 30 years, they really led, or one of the leaders, of the movement to deny climate science, to obfuscate the facts. Recognize Mr. Khanna, who is the chairman of the Subcommittee on the Environment. Now Congress is investigating Big Oil's role in what some call the climate change misinformation campaign. It was a mistake. It's a mistake. I thought you would just say it's a mistake. Then and now. Have they really turned a corner? Are they going to say, look, we understand the climate's important and we're going to have a different attitude. We're going to take accountability. Act two, a look back and the road ahead. ExxonMobil is a vast global organization of 63,000 employees on six continents, but it was made in America. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Steve Cole, who wrote a seminal book on the company, says its story is the story of oil. They attract a lot of attention. They did right from the beginning in the first part of the 20th century. And I think for many Americans, they are big oil. The first commercial oil well was drilled in 1859. A decade later, a 30-year-old John D. Rockefeller founded Standard Oil and in so doing, created one of the biggest fortunes in American history. Well, John D. Rockefeller was a perfectionist. He was ruthless, absolutely determined to succeed in business. By the 1880s, Rockefeller's company controlled 90% of domestic oil refining. Back then, kerosene, used for lighting, was the moneymaker. Gasoline was a byproduct, virtually useless. It was thrown away. Mark Brownstein of the Environmental Defense Fund. If you go back to the very history of Standard Oil, it was not obvious that, that you know, oil and petroleum was gonna be the thing that powered the world economy. The rest of the economy built up around it as they innovated. With the arrival of the automobile. A car comes off the end of the line every 10 seconds. A market for gasoline finally came of age. The company grew so powerful that the Supreme Court ruled it was a monopoly. The court ordered its breakup. 
Standard Oil became 34 separate companies. In 1926, the biggest descendant, Standard Oil of New Jersey, created a new blend of fuel called Esso. The company expanded dramatically over the next decades, in the U.S. and overseas. And in 1972, it changed its name, ushering in the modern era of Exxon. Then, in March 1989, a crisis, with a name that has become synonymous with environmental disaster, the Exxon Valdez. The worst oil spill in North American history. The tanker, the Exxon Valdez, had just loaded more than a million barrels of Alaskan crude. The spill killed wildlife in greater numbers than previously reported. After the Valdez, there was a sense that Exxon needed to get its house in order. The man assigned to that task was Lee R. Raymond, a chemical engineer by training, he was appointed chairman and CEO in 1993. He was a man of enormous self-confidence, and he was a believer in financial and, and operating discipline above all else. There is a lot of reflection on discipline and safety. And in 1998, Raymond engineered a more than $75 billion merger with Mobile, creating the largest oil company in the world and reuniting the two largest descendants of the Standard Oil breakup. The new company will be known as ExxonMobil and will retain both strong brands. At the close of the 20th century, ExxonMobil was one of the most valuable companies in the world. But today, its history and actions in the discussion around climate change have come under scrutiny. Did any of your executives at any point mislead the American public? Ro Khanna, a Democratic congressman from California, chairs the House Oversight Subcommittee on the Environment. He believes that big oil companies like Exxon can't move forward with an energy transition until they've come to terms with the past. And do you feel as though Exxon in particular holds a outsized role or is it across the board oil companies? The record shows that Exxon was the worst in terms of the most egregious. Now again, not the current management, just to be clear. In the fall of 2021, Kana helped launch high-profile hearings. We're going through all the documents because they've produced a tremendous amount of documents. To uncover what the big oil companies knew about climate change and when. He cited a document written by Exxon scientists back in the 1970s. Exxon had a report that said, quote, there is general scientific agreement that most likely, uh, the most likely manner in which mankind is influencing the global climate change is through carbon dioxide release from the burning of fossil fuels. But Kana said that in 2002, Lee Raymond, Exxon's then CEO, was still casting doubt on those conclusions. He said, quote, uh, there, he does not believe, quote, that the science establishes the linkage between fossil fuels and warming. I assume you would acknowledge that Mr. Raymond's statement was a mistake and the company regrets it, correct? Mr. Raymond's statement was consistent with the science. At the I, I, I don't even want to argue that, involved. Mr. Woods. I don't even want to argue that. Here's what disappointed me. Darren Woods did not distance himself from a single comment that past Exxon CEOs or executives made. But it, why does it matter? Why does it matter it was 20 years ago? Because it matters in what the culture of that company is. Is the company going to still hunker down and do everything possible to make maximum profits without really tackling climate? Or have they really turned a corner? Have they really gotten some religion? Do you think you pay a price not throwing your predecessor overboard, for lack of a better term, or at least just 
somehow meeting the objections that some of these legislators have in terms of taking you as a really trusted partner? I would say judge us on the work that we're doing and what we're doing going forward. I mean, we've got to focus on how we're going to address this problem. We're doing work today and advancing very large-scale projects on those needed technologies. We're engaged with governments all around the world to reduce emissions, while at the same time uh, providing reliable and affordable energy, which is so critical to people's standards of living all around the world. Darren Woods has been facing pressure not just from politicians, but from Exxon's own shareholders. First, D.E. Shaw, a giant hedge fund, got two new directors installed on the board in March of 2021. This after activists started to get involved. D.E. Shaw, which we've been reporting on for some time, took a sizable position in the company. During that same spring, a little-known activist investor called Engine Number no. 1 pushed the company to embrace the energy transition and mounted an audacious campaign to get four new members on Exxon's 12-member board. This is a very significant moment. This will be written about. This is historically important. Unclear at this hour whether Exxon has prevailed. And it's time to let shareholders have their voice. It appears that they have elected two. Shareholders have elected two of the dissidents' candidates for that board. And from what I understand, a third director uh, nominated from, by Engine One will actually join the board. This is either the most appalling intrusion into a company's business imaginable on one side, or it's about time something happened. In the end, shareholders voted in three out of the four candidates. Journalist Steve Cole says it was a shocking result. Exxon is nothing if not realistic, and their uh, experience of this proxy fight has surely gotten their attention. They've got three people on their board who they didn't want to be there, um, and so they've got to learn to, you know, navigate in a, in a different kind of conversation. Change is good uh, almost always, and the change here happened, you know, faster than otherwise would have. I think everybody's benefiting from a, a room that's got more new thinkers. Jeff Ubbin, a leading activist investor, is the founder of Inclusive Capital Partners, which focuses on sustainable investing. He was one of the two members who joined the Exxon board due to the pressure from D.E. Shaw. It's a good board. You've got environmental activists in the room. He kind of anchors the conversation over here and it makes other people like me look reasonable, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, no, but that, that's what a board should have. You know, I'm curious about what you've learned about the oil and gas industry that maybe differed from your beliefs before you joined the board. The only way we're gonna fix a problem is to go into the problem. You can't run away from the problem. We can determine our future. We can carve out our future because of this p climate imperative. Since the changes in its boardroom, Exxon has made a number of announcements. One of the biggest, its ambition to make its global operations net zero by 2050. It was the last oil major to make the pledge of capturing or removing as much greenhouse gases as it emitted. The fact that Exxon is modeling net zero and is comfortable with its role in a zero carbon economy in 2050, that's one year change. That's in one year we've done that. That's fascinating, right? CEO Darren Woods insists the company is taking shareholder concerns seriously. So I think it's roughly a year ago or so you, you lost that proxy fight. What, if anything, have you changed in terms of whether it's your transparency, whether it's the way you communicate with shareholders as a result of that event? 
I think you've touched on two important ones. For all these things, all these challenges, uh, you know, our job is to learn from those and make sure that we're responding to why did we get the votes against us. So you will see today uh, we've become much more uh, transparent so that people can get an idea of how we expect to manage this business as we move into this uncertain future. And, you know, the Houston Hub's a great example of that. Joe, nice to see you. Nice to see Thanks. you. Joe Blomart was the first head of a new business at Exxon called Low Carbon Solutions. Shall we go? Let's do it. Yeah. Shortly before announcing his retirement, Blomart showed us where the company is developing one of its biggest projects. Located around its massive Baytown complex, the Houston Hub is a proposed CCS, or Carbon Capture and Sequestration Network, and will include other industrial facilities in the area. When you talk about carbon capture and sequestration and the project that you're uh, beginning, um, how does this fit in? Yeah, most of the facilities uh, here, um, David, emit carbon dioxide. And what carbon capture and sequestration does, it captures that carbon dioxide prior to releasing it to the air, and then it transports it and deep underground sequester that in a safe and secure manner. This is actually an excellent location to do that. And then in close proximity of the US Gulf Coast, for instance, where there is a unique storage, amount of storage of CO2 possible. ExxonMobil is moving forward as fast as I've seen them move, which is pretty fast. Steve Davis is a geologist and researcher affiliated with Stanford University. He was a 22-year veteran of ExxonMobil who worked on CCS projects and left the company in 2020. He says the Houston hub will be expensive for several reasons, including the need for new infrastructure. Oil and um, gasoline pipelines are very low pressure systems relative to what we have to transport CO2. So the existing pipeline system we have, to the extent that we might hope to repurpose it to transport CO2, is not going to work? Probably not. CO2, if it gets any exposure to water, um, will react with water to create carbonic acid, which is corrosive to steel. For a spec-built CO2 pipeline, that you're going to be looking at something around $300,000 per inch mile. So that means for every inch of diameter, that mile will cost $300,000 to build. All of a sudden, you're way up in the millions to $10 million per mile for that pipeline. You're talking multi-billion dollar projects. Huge. The cost of these pipelines uh, it comes up a lot, Joe. If we were to really do this nationally or internationally, it would be very expensive. This is not new. CO2 is actually being used already for quite some time. The industry understands how to transport CO2 through a pipeline. The corrosion aspects can be managed. The use case for carbon capture is we just need to get that scale going. Like the, Once we get the scale going, great things will happen. We'll go down this cost curve. EDF's Mark Brownstein agrees that large-scale CCS projects are needed to lower carbon emissions, but he doesn't see real progress on the Houston hub. It is, in fact, visionary, so good for them. Okay, but what's missing underneath that are any of the, the business plans, any of the engineering plans. I mean, this is a company that does its homework. I would say that's a mis mischaracterization. We have done our homework. 
And frankly, we've announced a project in Baytown, which is a starter project for that hub. And so we've got a project and works, hydrogen, carbon capture and storage, reducing emissions at our site, a viable project that's been advanced. So uh, it's real, it's happening. There's more work to be done, no doubt about that. But uh, you know, the, the journey of a thousand miles starts with the first step, and we're taking several first steps. And one of the crucial pieces Exxon says it needs is a price on carbon of at least $100 a ton. That price may influence another project that Exxon touts. At its research and development facility in central New Jersey, the company is testing materials that could be made into something called biofuels. B.J. Swarup is the vice president of R&D. Welcome, David, to Thank our biology you. lab. We do a variety of things here. Biologist Kelsey McNeely is looking into different organic materials, from algae to wood chips. So what did this come from originally, though? This was... This was wood, so this... It was, okay. It started right. looking like that, yes. and um, I like to think about it basically as liquefied wood. You basically just cook, cook that sawdust um, under the right conditions and it liquefies and then we can upgrade that into a drop-in fuel. We want to understand down to the DNA level what is actually going on in the biology. So in this lab, we have the ability to sequence DNA. You can tailor the biology to be able to get the products, the feeds you want to make the fuels that society wants with the lower carbon intensity. A lower carbon intensity because biofuel is potentially a carbon neutral fuel. So we actually account for the carbon dioxide that plants pull out of the air and the energy that you have to put into farming those plants and then the energy to process and finally uh, the emissions associated with using it as a fuel. And carbon neutral basically just means that that accounting comes out at zero or close to zero. They've talked for years, for example, about you know, advanced biofuels. And it's a great talking point and they're right. We need sustainable aviation fuels if we're gonna continue to be able to fly for pleasure or for business. But how many years can you talk about your intention to develop them before after a while it begins to wear thin? This is not a one company uh, activity or endeavor. It requires policy, it requires market incentives. As the policy gets put in place, as the market incentives develop, then you'll see us move into that space. You're in a position right now, given where oil prices are, that you're generating massive amounts of cash flow. Cash flows that could be deployed in any number of ways. But your shareholders may just want you to buy back stock. Um, how do you respond to sort of their desires when you think about what you need to do in terms of positioning the company for the future? We've got a very long-term horizon. We've been around for 100, 135 years. Uh, our expectation is to be around for the next 135 years. When we first started out, we were, we were basically making kerosene to replace well oil for lighting. The electric light came on, we went moved into gasoline, we moved into chemicals. Our company has been evolving since its inception, and we will continue to do that. If ExxonMobil is trying to change direction, the question remains, how fast can it turn? Jeff Ubbin says it's a question on the minds of all the company's board members. Biofuels and carbon capture are so close that Houston Hub, for instance, probably needs $100 to $110 a ton of carbon. Just like they made long-term investments in hydrocarbons, and they theoretically made a bet on hydrocarbon pricing, is Exxon willing to make a bet on carbon pricing? So do we want to lead the transition, and do we want to speculate, for lack of a better word, on carbon, on the carbon economy, or do we want to wait for it to happen? That is the conversation we have four, five, six times a year.
Geologist Steve Davis, who worked on ExxonMobil's carbon capture projects, is more circumspect. And to those critics of ExxonMobil who say that their efforts are nothing more than greenwashing, what do you say? Um, could be. You do think it could be? The core business of ExxonMobil is to produce and refine hydrocarbons. And um, in order to move away from that would require a very large shift in just about the entire culture of the company. Could happen, but it's going to be generational. If you move too fast, you leave a whole lot of the country and people in the world behind. And so there's a very delicate balance. A delicate balance, especially when you have a global economy still powered largely by fossil fuels. And when gas prices skyrocket across the nation, prompting politicians to ask big oil to pump more, the energy transition ends up taking a back seat to the need to find more oil. For Exxon, one of those places is a tiny country south of the U.S. mainland. I'm David Faber. Thanks for joining me. Continue listening to part two of ExxonMobil at the Crossroads, where we'll journey to the company's offshore operations in South America, and then examine how this oil and gas company is banking on chemicals in the future. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.